Yo, before we get into the episode, I want to tell you about a different podcast called American Masters Creative Spark. It's from the great people at PBS. I love PBS. And they it's an award-winning show. They, the new season is going to have Kelly Reichardt, the uh, director of First Cow, up-and-coming actor John David Washington, Pulitzer-winning novelist Jennifer Egan. You know, I didn't know all of those names, but as soon as I started checking out the show, I started seeing all these names all over the places that I like to be. And it felt like a doorway into just a deeper level of art, which I always, it feels so good to ground myself in those things. And if you're looking for a place to set up camp and get grounded, there's not much better than the babbling brook-esque voice of the host joe skinner let's just say if after this pep you need to chill out a minute and just soak up the goodness of a tranquil moment with art reflection creative spark has got you covered joe man great host great voice go check it out minds of artists in all different disciplines listen wherever you listen to podcasts they're not keeping it gatekeeped anywhere it's just everywhere all right thanks <laughs> american masters creative spark go check it out jack prince just one minute to tell you about it listen i've been working with jack prince for so many years now they're based in ohio they make good print work there's nothing else to really say i like him i like working with them they made our calendar smell good for free, no extra cost for the nice smell that print has when it's done right. You don't want that stanky print. You want jacked up prints, metaphorically, not actually jacked up because they come nice, they packed them well, they take care of you over there at Jack Prints. They're in Cleveland, I'm in Columbus, we're just close by. I'm happy to be in partnering with them. Go, if you need a, what I'm trying to say is, if you need a poster, you need to make your own calendar. Maybe you want to make some stickers, maybe a t-shirt. I got two t-shirts that I got made from Jack Prince with my own designs. They're the first out of the wash babies. You know what I'm saying? Go check them out. J-A-K-P-R-I-N-T-S.com in all seriousness. They do good work. If you want some good work, they'll work good for you. That's their motto. Not really. On the creative journey, it's easy to get lost, but don't worry, you'll lift off. Sometimes you just need a creative pep talk. Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. If you are anything like me, you probably have had these phases in your creative work where it seems like the harder you try to improve the work, the worse the work gets. Like it has this inverse reaction and result in your work. Like you try to make it better, but the work actually suffers. 
for that effort. And it's easy in that space just to give up and be like, I just got to let go. I can't purposefully make this creative work better. But in today's episode, we're going to explore how your inner critic, that thing that is what gets you stuck in your head, or at least in the wrong parts of your head when you're going to the page creatively, how if you can relate differently to that, if you can find the place for that inner critic, it can surprisingly be the thing that helps you overcome creative block instead of the thing that creates it. That's what we're going to do in this episode. Let's get into it. Just a heads up, this is episode three in what I have been calling our Creative Taste series, but I'm going to change its name because it's my podcast, man. I'm going to call it the Creative Sensibility series instead because the further I dive into it, the more I feel like that's a better title because yes, taste is what informs our work and what we want to make. Taste is the sense it's our, our, our sense of taste is the sense that helps us know what we like, why we like what we like, and helps guide us like a compass in our own practice in the work that we make to get closer and closer to making stuff that we like. And yes, taste is the same thing that does that, but what taste makes possible? It's a sixth sense, a creative intuition that informs this ability to navigate our practice. And that ability is the ability of that sense. And it is the creative sensibility. And your taste is what informs and determines your creative sensibility. And I have this deep conviction that style matters in your creative work, substance matters. But the thing that guides you to both of those things and the thing that forms ultimately forms the essence of your work over a creative journey, over a creative career is your creative sensibility. It is the way that you approach the page. It's the way that you consume creative work that informs you as your influences. And ultimately, I think it's the foundation of your practice. And so if you don't have a sense of what your creative sense ability is, that's what this series is all about finding the form of your creative sensibility and making that the foundation of your work. This is part three. I think we're going to have one more part uh, and I hope that it is helpful in getting in touch with that creative sensibility that is so essential to your creative practice. Let's get into it. Chapter one, to taste or not to taste? That is the question. This chapter is trying to get at this discourse around should you as an artist try to make better work or should you not try? Should you just be hands off and you don't get to determine the outcome of whether things are better or worse? It's not for you to decide. Like, should you try or should you not try? Should you critique your work? Should you be your harshest critic? Some artists say that. 
Some artists fall on that end of the spectrum. Like they're like, the reason my work's so good is because nobody's a harsher critic than me. You've probably heard somebody say that. Or should you fall on the other end of the spectrum and say, you should never let critics into your head. You should never critique your work. You shouldn't think critically about it. You shouldn't analyze it. All of that is just going to get in your head and block your flow. Which is it? Do we taste our own work and evaluate it or do we never taste it? We, we never look at the end result and we never try to make it any better. Which is it? For me personally, the thing that has made the biggest impact is not whether I should or shouldn't be critical. It's not if I should be critical. It is when I should be critical. For me, the most essential aspect of implementing a type of critique and analysis in effort to improve my creative work, the most essential piece of that isn't if I should do it, it's when. When should you apply that part of your an analytical mind. In this episode, I want to talk about when to do that, how to bake it into very particular pieces of your creative process so that it doesn't get you stuck in your head, but you get to access that part of your head that is your personal taste and get you closer to making the kind of work that is your taste that is flowing from your creative sensibility. So maybe right now, even you're in a place where you don't like the stuff you're making as much as you wish that you did. And when you go to try to make it better, it actually makes it worse. Maybe you listen to this podcast or other creative podcasts and you hear an idea from me or from a, someone I'm interviewing or another artist. And you think, Oh my gosh, it's so simple, man. Like I'll, I'm doing that. And you, you're excited. You go to the page, you start working and it actually made what you were working on worse than it was when you weren't trying so hard. And so what do you do when what you do to improve the work actually works against improvement at all? What, what most of us do is we just quit trying so hard. We just quit trying to improve the work at all because when we try to improve it, it gets worse, but now we know what's wrong with it, but we can't do anything with it. And so when we try harder, when we learn new techniques, we actually like our work less, our work gets worse, and we actually work less too because all of a sudden the creative process is now just full of demons. It's full of pain and stress and we ha don't like making it anymore. So we don't work as much as we used to. And so it's not a surprise why so many creators, myself included at many times, uh, just quit trying to improve, Tr quit trying to make it better and just completely distanced ourselves from effort within our own creative practice. Okay, that's not a good one. Uh, I gotta move on. Can't be so critical. Just, just get out of my head and go. Just go. And we get into this mindset of like, oh man, if only we could go back when the work used to just flow. If only we could go back to that pure creative state of childhood. But I actually think that maybe there's even a lie there. 
Like the other day I heard my son and his friend talking about the videos that they used to make like three or four years ago when they were actually funny. Like, man, we were so much funnier then. Like the word, the videos we were making back then were just so funny and we just can't make that anymore. And I just thought, man, what the heck is going on? Like these kids are already stuck in their heads. Like they tried, they made funny videos. They loved those videos and they thought, you know what? We can make better videos than that. But that approach to making videos actually made them make less funny videos. And so what is a creator to do in that situation? Like is the only option to just never consume uh, your own work or ever critique your own work is consuming and critiquing your own work really truly as deadly for creators as most of us think that it is, or is there a different way to consume your work and a different way to critique your work that actually leads to it improving? I think there is. Now, like I said, I'm in the camp of it's not about if you should critique your work or if you should put effort into improving your work. It's when you should critique it. And to kind of illustrate this idea, let's bring it into the world of food for a second. Let's imagine you get an idea. You're like, you know what? I'm going to make the best chicken Parmesan the world has ever seen, or at least my family's ever seen. And you just have super high hopes and you put your blood, sweat and tears in it, metaphorically speaking. And <laughs> that's not how the marinara is made. Okay. You make this chicken Parmesan, you, you put your best efforts into it. You send it out of the kitchen and onto the family table and they start tucking in and you can see like, ah, uh, they're not loving it as much as you hoped. Maybe there's even some spitting in napkins kind of situation. And you're like, come on, guys, I worked so hard on this. Like, be have an open mind. And your kid just goes total Gordon Ramsay on you like, are you crazy? Have you tasted that? And you're like, well, no. And so you give it a little taste and you're like, huh, Ugh, not as good as I hoped it would be. I should have tasted this earlier in the process so that I knew that it wasn't really going to plan. And so next time you're like, look, I'm going to taste it at every stage of the process so that I can check in and make sure that things are progressing towards the best chicken Parmesan that I've ever made. And so next time what happens, you get started making that chicken Parmesan and first thing Right as you start cooking that chicken, you give it a little taste. Uh, <laughs> what happens? Does it lead to a better chicken parm? No, it leads to a dead cook because there are parts of the process where you can't taste the dish or it's deadly for the creator. It's not that you shouldn't ever consume or critique your creative dishes. It's that tasting it before it's had time to cook, before it's had a little time to simmer, means that it's not just bad for the dish, but it is literally deadly for the maker. And if you taste it too early in the process, if you taste it at the wrong times of the process, it might just be the last chicken parm you ever make. 
And the takeaway from the story is clearly it's not that you shouldn't ever taste your own dish. It's not that you shouldn't take that dish, swish it around your own palate, be critical of it. Think, you know what? It needs a little bit of salt. It needs a little bit of this. Next time I should bake it for a little bit longer. It's not about if you should do that or not. It's about when is it safe and helpful to do the taste test. And so forget the chicken parm and the master chefs. Let's talk about when is it safe to taste your own pieces and how doing so can actually help you make your own masterpieces. <laughs> well, I don't think that was that a rhyme. I don't know. Let's get into it. Chapter two, separate the, well, hold on a second. Back to chapter one for just a split second. You guys got the idea that you can't test a chicken dish before the chicken is safe to eat because of bacteria that can kill you. There's a, you have to, chicken has to be 165 degrees. That's, hey, that's a, that's not even a creative tip. That's just a life tip, life hack. Don't eat. Have you seen those people on the internet that, I God, this just makes me ill. There's these, you know, posts of someone being like, <laughs> there was two actually. One was uh, medium rare chicken. That's, <laughs> we're fancy like that. And you're like, no, like that. It's deadly. It's deadly to taste the chicken at the wrong times in the process, right? Um, and then there's another one, this LinkedIn thing, which I have to hope and pray that this is actual parody, but it looks real. And it's a guy on LinkedIn who's like saving his company's per diem, saving his company money by cooking his own dinner instead of using the travel spend on eating out, cooking his own dinner in his hotel room by cooking chicken in the, the coffee maker. Oh God. It's just... It makes me ill. Anyway, that I just want to make sure we got that. That, that, that. That's what I meant by there are times in the process that if you taste it, it's it's bad for the dish, deadly for you because you might not come back and make another one if it goes that poorly. Uh, that's what I was try, trying to get at. All right, chapter two, separate the creative cooking and the critical tasting. Those are two very different things. And so... It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So when should you critically taste your work and, and, uh, and, and bring that perspective, that critical mind to the thing that you're making? Well, when we, we're, we're going to talk about when in just a second. But before we do, we really need to define what these two different modes actually are so that we can interchange between them at the right wins at the right times. Uh, the first part of changing into those two lanes is creating those highway mile markers. 
No lines in the road that divide this big, like right now thinking is just like a four lane highway or a two lane highway in this case, (laughs) that's just wide open, baby. And it's like Kramer when he adopts a road in Seinfeld, if you're old enough to be someone who recognizes this reference, but there's a character on a show. He's quite zany. He adopts a road and he paints over the lines so that he has this massive wide highway so that people can leisurely drive throughout it. But of course, those separations are there to create some order and it just goes to complete chaos. And that's what happens when you don't realize thinking isn't just this giant wide highway. Thinking isn't all the same thing. They're actually distinct types of thinking and they, and, and brainstorming and creativity. Uh, there are these very different modes in your brain. And the first step to accessing them in the right time when you need them is just understanding how to separate them, understanding the difference between them that will help you choose and activate those different pieces of yourself. And so there are, there's the critical side and there's the creative side. Both are essential to making your best work, but, uh, understanding how they're different is essential to knowing when to use each of them. this is how you get a situation like the one that my son and his friend are in where they feel like their best videos, their funniest videos are in their past when they're only 10 years old right now. Well, I think how you get to that place is you, you watch of your old video or the video you just made and you think, you know, what would have been funnier is if we did this, And that is your critical brain critiquing yourself. And that right there in itself, I actually think is an essential part of the creative process, uh, an essential part of improving your creative work. And what happens is you take that critical mind and you enter the next video. But what you're trying to do is do creative and critical modes of being and thinking at the same time, which is impossible, but it's not impossible to do both of those things at different times. So how can you separate, separate them, eight up, eight up that supper of, is it, we're going back to the chicken parm, man. How do you eat that supper of, <laughs> doesn't make any sense. How do you, How do you separate out the critical mode and the creative mode on purpose? How do you activate them? Well, the the first thing you do is you just understand that they are two different things. So what you need to do is you need to define those modes of thinking so that you can recognize them and organize them into the helpful spaces of the creative process. For me, it's almost like a breathing thing where the critical and the creative modes, they ebb and flow back and forth in and out throughout your creative process of making a new piece of work. Okay, so I'm not a brain scientist, but here's what I've learned about it or how I've learned to think about it. The creative brain is known as divergent thinking. You've probably heard that before. The critical brain 
the critical logical brain, the rational side is known as convergent, convergent thinking. And you don't need to know these terms, but if you want to learn them so that you can have a word to recognize them as they show up, the stupid way that I remember it is divergent starts with dive. And that's like dive right in, cannonball into the play of creativity. Just dive right in, baby. Have a good time. Start splashing around. Convergent starts with the word con, and it makes me think of pros and cons or cons, like convicts, like that kind of thing. Uh, and con just has the, um, in the positive negative connotations, con is on the negative side and con, and then on that negative side is the critical is you are critiquing. And so convergent is the critical side. So that's my stupid way of remembering them. So here's how I think they work uh, in the process. So the reason why I think convergent thinking, being critical, getting in that logical side of your brain uh, can be a stumbling block. It can be a way in which you can get stuck in your head. And when we say stuck in our head, we're talking about not just in our head, but in convergent thinking, we're getting stuck in our logical, critical part of our brain as we're going to make creative work, which is a play. It is a thing you do for fun. Quick shout out to our sponsor, you. If you... Our Patreon backer, you're a sponsor of the show, and we see you. We appreciate you. This show is partially listener-supported, and we, we couldn't do it without you, honestly. You help pay for Connor's limousine and fancy Doritos. He only eats from Whole Foods. They probably have fancy Doritos, but I guarantee they're worse. Anyway, I don't know. He seems like a cool ranch guy. I am. Uh, anyway... Thank you. Thanks for doing that. Thanks. If you can afford to give a couple bucks a show a month to help us pay for Connor's Dorito problem, we appreciate you. And <laughs> sorry, Connor. Connor looks like a healthy guy, honestly. Sorry. Anyway, um, not trying to get into the looks of my uh, contractors and friends. This is going awful. But let me say this. Thanks. If you can afford to kick a few bucks to the show, it really helps. And we've seen a bunch of you come out and do that recently. So thank you. Um, not so many of you that we don't need some more. We could use a few more. Um, go to patreon.com slash creative pep talk. You can back the show. If you can't afford it, forget it. Don't do it. Don't make this a burden on you. But if you can, go for it. If you want to help out the show and you don't have a few bucks to spare at this time, we would appreci appreciate you sharing the show. You can just text a friend who you think might need a little creative pep, a little extra strategy for the creative practice, and start a conversation. You never know. It might be a whole thing that you can do to distract yourself from actually getting anything done today. And sometimes that's exactly what you need. That's your creative pep talk. All right. Thanks, guys. You know, there is this way in which I'm a big believer in that in goals in your creative career, in your creative practice. I think they can be 
very helpful. Goals are, though, part of that logical convergent thinking. Those goals can, we're going to talk about in a minute, very specific places to put these uh, types of thinking into your process and where they go. But goals, I think, can be the type of critical thinking that can create really good, interesting constraints, rules to the game that don't impede the game, don't impede the play if you know how to do it, uh, but actually make the play fluid to make it have a purpose, to have some clarity on what you're doing when you're playing. Like that's the idea of rules in a game. And that kind of convergent thinking, that goal setting can be really powerful. But if you don't keep it over there, if you try to ref the game at the same time you're playing the game, you're going to have a hard time losing yourself in the divergent, diving deep into the play of creativity. There was, as I've made this podcast over time, I've tried to dip my toes into the scientific side of what neuroscience talks about when it, what it's discovered about creativity. I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm sure I get it wrong plenty. I'm really just trying to learn just enough to improve my own creative practice, not necessarily so that I can explain it, you know, in a brain scan. I don't need that level. But one of the studies that I found in that, I don't even want to call it research. I don't like when people talk about, my, my wife and I talk about this a lot. Like we try to avoid the word research when it means we, we Googled something, right? Um, but uh, as I dove into some of these studies, research, as I dove into the research of uh, real researchers, I found this study about, um, I think it was in the mid-century, they were studying like the top architects, the people that were found to be the most creative in their architectural practice. And they were trying to figure out like, what is different about these folks? And the number one thing, the biggest takeaway from the study, and we've explored this a bit on previous episodes, is they are happy to play with a problem instead of rushing to solve it. And I think that's a really good indicator which brain space you're in. Are you desperate to solve the problem or are you desperate to enjoy the process? Now, if you want a creative process, there was a time in which you wanted that because you loved the process, not because you loved money. If you loved money, you're doing it the wrong way. Just see that wrong. As soon as you think it's all about money, just picture you're driving down that open highway and you're just seeing sign after sign that says you're going the wrong way because making creative work is not the best, safest, fastest, direct route to making tons of money if that's what it's all about um, or accolades or, or praise or whatever it is. Those goals, that's not ultimately... I think goals are good, but goals are not why you're making creative work. Uh, if you're anything like me, the reason you wanted to turn this into a practice, why you wanted to be a career-minded creative is because you loved creative work. At some point, you loved the creative process so much that you wanted to spend as much time as humanly possible doing it. But as you go to do that, it's easier to get stuck in that groove of goal setting and money making and accolade building and all of the things. And you forget, oh, I was doing that, not for the sake of those things, but 
for the way that they enable my ability to do the work. And so if you find yourself in the creative process desperate to find a solution, one solution, that is not your play. Because if you're really enjoying a board game, if you're like, you know, if I'm hanging out with my in-laws and we're having a couple drinks and we're having a couple more drinks and we're playing Settlers of Catan and I'm settled in, like I'm having a good time, I get mad when I can see people rushing to the end. You know, my mother-in-law, sometimes she gets tired at night and we're playing uh, one of our favorite games is Stone Age. And she's actually really good at Stone Age. Uh, we play this game. It's a board game, kind of like Settlers of Catan. And I can see like, oh, she's picking up card after card of the little hut cards. And you, if you don't know the game, you don't know that if you get to the bottom of one of those stacks, the game's over. And I'm like, just Linda, settle down, man. We're trying, we're having a good time. We're not trying to solve the problem of playing a board game. We're trying to play. We're not trying to solve a board game. We're trying to play a board game. And when you find yourself in that mindset where you're trying to solve a, a creative process instead of play in the creative process, you know, you're in the wrong headspace and you've got to create some boundaries before you start making with that logical side uh, so that when you're in the creative process, you know you're safe to mess around, play, explore, and have a good time. That is so essential to recognize those two different energies. So let's talk about when to be critical of your work, not if. When in the, in the process does that convergent thinking actually help you? And that convergent thinking, that's your inner critic. That's you finding a place for them in the process. And that inner critic, the reason why I think they're so important is that that inner critic is your taste. That is the part of you that is saying, I like what you're cooking. I hate what you're cooking. I like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I was trying to make a little dit, 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 little song out of it, but it's Ira Glass has this viral video back in like 2013. He's the host of This American Life, host and creator. And he said that, you know, we all get into creative work because of taste. That was a mind melting experience for me when he said that. Everybody talks about what he says next, which he said, we get into art because of our taste, but it's also the reason we give up because there's a gap between our taste and what we make. And so the taste that got us into it, it was like, made us be like, look, I know what's good is the same thing that says, I know what's good and what I'm making isn't good. And then there's this huge process to get your work to be as good as your taste. And that's true. I do think that that's true. But I think one of the ways you can uh, maybe circumnavigate your taste being the stumbling block that actually makes you stop working and can be useful from the beginning and your work can taste better from the beginning is if you know how to, how to put your taste, AKA your inner critic 
in the right phases of the process. And you're going to see taste showing up throughout the creative process, guiding the creative process. And why I think the most profound thing that Ira Glass said in that is that we got into this because of taste. Because at the at that time, I never heard, like, since then, I've had people like Ira Glass and uh, I've heard Rick Rubin talk about it. I've heard about uh, Gordon Ramsay talk about it and Seth Godin, all these different people that have had a big impact on me creatively and my kind of uh, creative approach um, talk about taste, but it's not something, the reason why I've spent so much of the podcast talking about it is it's not part of the discourse in a way where I feel like we're all able to implement it in a way that's helpful to our creative work. And so how can you take that true North, the thing that tells you that it's the, it's your subjective definition of good. It's what you're aiming at. It's the thing that keeps you on track. How do you put it into your practice in a way where it's helpful and not hurtful? Here's how I think you do it. So phase one, I think phase one of the, of this process is tasting. I've found that there's a lot of ways to do mood boards that are not helpful. When you just create a mood board to rip off stuff, bad idea. Don't suggest that. Early in your creative journey, maybe. Like we had Kirby Ferguson uh, who did the whole Everything is a Remix series back in the day. And he talks about the process starting with copying. I think there is a degree in which in the early phases of your journey, yes, that's true. But I think in the later stages of your journey, it's not that you shouldn't have influences. It's that your mood boards should be more eclectic uh, and, and more mature as well as the work being mature. And so it might look like if you're Solange Knowles, Beyonce's sister, I know she does this. I know that uh, Katie Crutchfield from Waxahachie does a similar thing where you're creating mood boards for your album, but it's not just a Spotify playlist. I'm sure it references music, but it's also images, pictures, stories, uh, all these different art forms that somehow get at the mood, the, the, the taste that you're trying to create. And that taste should also have a level where you're critiquing the previous stuff. Like as you get further in your creative journey, it should be harder and harder to find something that lights up your creative taste buds, that surprises your taste buds in the perfect kind of way that you don't create yourself. Like that ends up to me being the, the, the purpose of your creative work is to create the thing that doesn't exist, the thing that is going to surprise your taste buds unlike anything else. And that's the reason for creating it. George Steiner, uh, who's a literary critic and, and philosopher, or he was, I think he's passed now, talked about like in a utopia, there wouldn't be any creative critics. And the only way to critique something would be to create something different that you think does a better job. I think that's essentially what creativity is. I don't think we need to, I don't think we need to shoot much higher than that. that. That's a high bar to hit as it is. Back to the point. All right. Phase one. That's the, I was talking about mood board because that's the tasting. That's just the, that's the divergent creative. You're not looking for a solution. You're not trying to solve, I'm hungry, got to eat this protein block. And solved, no, that's not what a connoisseur of food does. 
They're not trying to just solve a problem. They're trying to explore, have fun, taste a bunch of things, be surprised, see the possibilities. That's just divergent energy, that mood board. When you're making a mood board, you're just look, you're just like trying to find stuff that light up your inner taste buds, the tongue in your soul. That's the kind of taste we're talking about. <laughs> your soul's tongue. That's my new band name, phase two. This is where convergent thinking or uh, yeah, convergent thinking. See, I had to go back to my con bad thing. Convergent thinking starts to play a role. This is writing your recipe. Phase two is what are you going to cook? It's time to choose time to take that big open mood board and it's time to choose what connections you're going to make and how you're going to attempt to make this happening happen. You're going to edit it down. That editing requires this. It's not open. Anything goes. It's we're going to make some hierarchical subjective decisions about what to use as influence and what not to. And this is writing the recipe is creating a brief for your work, creating constraints for your work. They act as guardrails for your bowling. So you don't end up in the gutter as a creator that this, this is helpful for that where you're, you're starting out with, this is a, a strategic mind that says that's the end. That's kind of you're you're coming up with, you know, you've heard people say it like, Oh, it just didn't look as good on the page as it did in my head. The journey of the creator is that if you do the creative process, right, the thing that ends up on the paper is surprisingly better than what you intended. That's the hope. And I, and I actually think there is hope there. The further you go, the more you create these spaces of critical thinking and, and creative play. I think that those accidents and surprises happen more and more when you know how to steward them. But it starts with having an intention that is a critical intention. And that looks like writing your recipe, writing your brief. Okay. Phase three, that's when you start cooking. This is where you start throwing this stuff onto the page, throwing the stuff in the pot, getting that chicken in there. Don't taste it. Good God. It's a terrible experience. You know, this is uh, Ouija board creativity, which I thought I coined. And then I heard John Mayer say it and I thought, okay, I didn't know John Mayer was cooler than me, but apparently he is. And I, I don't know if you've seen that uh, video of him Ouija board creating. And this is the phase, this is phase three cooking where he just starts playing and he's like, and this is where you, and he talks about like, this is where you can't be critical. You have to have bravery to be dumb, to be stupid. And it helps to do it privately sometimes if you can't find that creative confidence to do this within a group setting. And he just starts playing and he just starts singing what he's seeing. Then he's making a connection. Then he's playing with it. Some of it's bad, some of it's good. But I think a lot of us found a lot of respect for John Mayer in that moment because you're like, man, this is kind of cool, right? Like this is where you start to, this is where you get that voice in your head that says no critics and no critics doesn't mean no critics ever, no critical thinking ever. It means not when you're cooking, baby, not when you're starting to try new things and you got to find that play zone and you got to not jump to a conclusion. One trick that I have up my sleeve for this period of time is, I have two tricks up my sleeve for this. One is <laughs> sleeve. That's a good word. What has happened to me today? I'm in a weird zone. Um, 
I'm in a playful zone. Uh oh. Uh oh. I set that table, baby. Setting the table should have been one of the convergent thinking phases. Maybe I'll integrate that as I go. But I set that table. Now I'm having a good time playing as I record. Connor, you can do the phase, the editing phase on this madness. Oh, um, I am. Okay, two tricks on how to get to play. Because as I'm talking about this, I'm guessing as a creator, you're recognizing that in this phase of your life, you lean to convergent or you lean to divergent. You have a preference for one or the other. If you are an adult and you don't have big, heavy burdens of responsibilities, maybe you still find it easy and still prefer the creative play of, div of divergent thinking. Maybe you just want to have fun all the time. And maybe you can afford that. And I hope that you can because it's, you know, for a lot of people as they grow up, they have an almost impossible time connecting to that part of themselves that allows themselves to play and waste time. And, uh, you know, when I was a kid, all I did all the way up to like age 18, all I did was play. All I did was mess around. And then when things got serious, I started having a hard time accessing that part of myself. And so whichever part you have a hard time accessing, I hope we're giving you some tricks and tools on how to do that. This episode was inspired by something I didn't want to talk about um, because it's embarrassing because it's kind of a creative pep talk to Bob Dylan. And I'm saying that as the most embarrassing thing that anyone's <laughs> ever said. Any, I'm an illustrator who's worked with a couple big clients and I wanted to give Bob Dylan a pep talk. As I'm saying it, my skin is crawling with the audacity. It's so embarrassing, but I, I had to share it because it's not that I think, Oh, I understand creativity better than Bob Dylan. No, I It's not that I don't have anything to teach this guy. I just, I just saw a clip of him on 60 minutes that made me sad. And I just wanted to be like, look, man, come on, buddy. Like, I just, I just wanted to do it. I don't know. It's awful. It's I'm embarrassed, but Here's where it came from. He said that, and I'm taking the, I'm risking, I'm trying to be brave in the creative play and say, today, let's, all right, no more rhyming. Bob Dylan, I'm trying to use rhyming as a shield <laughs> for my embarrassment. Bob Dylan talked about how when he was younger, he had this creative magic that he just can't access anymore at, in his older age. And I just felt like, that magic sounded like divergent thinking. And I, and I, and it sounded just like my son and his friend saying, we used to be able to make these videos that we were just so much funnier back then. And we just can't do that anymore. And I just, I don't know about Bob Dylan. Maybe he really was possessed by a magic that we don't understand. I mean, in a way there's a lot of legitimacy to that claim, but, uh, I don't like that it perpetuates an idea that um, that creativity is somehow like athleticism where you're in your prime when you're 27 or in your early 20s or, or whatever it is uh, and, and that it's all downhill from there because I think we end up idolizing immaturity really in creativity. 
I tell my daughter all the time, my, my 14 year old, we, we like a lot of the same music and we talk about it. And there's a lot of times where I'm like, look, I love this artist, but I feel like they're really immature. And I think if they're able to hold on to this divergent thinking, even when the pressure is on, even when it's time, they, they got to justify their existence. They got to stay relevant. They, they got all these things that can lead you to get stuck in the convergent thinking. I hope that they're able to take that amazing creative spark and add to it. Like my favorite creators have over the years, add to it the maturity and actually get better like a wine. I actually think creativity is like that. And I think the mindset that the magic is in the past is one of the reasons that it stays in the past. Um, and so I don't know why I went on that rant and this episode is going to be too long and I apologize for that. But two things that help me as a dad of three who has, <laughs> who has ADHD that really struggles to do other types of work than the stuff that I love. And there feels like there's a lot riding on my creative practice. Sometimes there's two tricks that I get in phase three when I start cooking and I need to play. There's two tricks that I have. The first trick comes from John Cleese of Monty Python. And he said that <clears throat> he will create a period of time. That's usually about twice as long as he thinks it needs to be so that you have a lot of margin. Cause you can't really get into play when you're like, all right, you got to play right now. Do it on command. Like that's not a good time, right? Um, you need extra space. So take whatever you think it's going to take, whatever amount of time it's going to take, and then give yourself double that amount of time. And then in that creative phase three, when you're going to throw stuff around, for me, that's the sketch phase in illustration. By the time I'm coloring it, that phase is less important to be in the play zone. To me, it's the idea phase. It's the sketch phase. It's I'm throwing stuff around. And in that part of the process, I do what John Cleese talks about where he's like, in that, if I give myself two hours, if I think I need an hour, give myself two hours. Think I need two hours, give myself four hours. That's how you double numbers. And in that space, I don't have a goal because goal, by the way, that's the convergent thinking. I have a uh, the only goal, the only requirement is that it's enjoyable, is that it's fun, that I'm having a good time. That's the first thing. Second thing is you create that space and the second trick for the phase three, a lot of numbers, um, this is, uh, here's another number. Uh, I try to create three to four solutions and I learned this the hard way. Some of my best breakthroughs came this way. I've mentioned this on the show. My first book, Indie Rock Coloring Book, came as a fake idea because I had to have four ideas to present at, in college for my final degree project. And I came up with one idea that I knew was the perfect idea. And then I thought, I just got to come up with three other ones that are terrible so that I get the full grade because you had to pick up pick four ideas and that my first idea looks amazing and trying to come up with more terrible ideas was just the kind of low stakes, uh, no pressure zone where play can happen and real creativity can flourish. And that my last idea when I was really trying to come up with something stupid was the indie rock coloring book became the, the first book I ever published. And I think it's because those teachers knew that when you are planning on throwing away ideas, the pressure is off 
And, and, and when you're planning, when you only need one solution, but you come up with four, that's how you trick yourself into playing with the problem instead of solving it. And so those are two tricks for us adults who are finding a hard time finding the magic that we had before. And I, if you do that, you will be surprised. Like I, every year I find a new layer of creative magic in my process that I didn't have 10 years ago. And I think that makes me better than Bob Dylan. <sighs> the self-loathing. But I'm trying to be honest about where it came from. I don't know. Don't judge me. Um, I love me. I love myself. Even though, uh, <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> all right, that's phase three. Let's move on. Let's keep going. We're, holy crap, this this is a 19-minute recording. Uh-oh, phase two is long in this one. Um, okay, last thing I'll say about phase three is that uh, this has been really essential in making picture books. Picture books is such a long process for me that it's easy for me to get into the convergent thinking of this is the, we need to find one solution. We need to do it fast because there's just so much to get through. And what I've realized is I only started making picture books because I enjoy making them, but I don't enjoy them if I'm trying to get through them. And so I've just decided I am going to figure out a way to enjoy the process or I'm not going to do it because the whole point was to enjoy the process. Holy crap. Uh, and so that's phase three. Phase four, inner critic, invite him back in the room. Okay. He comes back in. He sees what you've been playing with and all the stuff you've been doing. And he's like, okay, this is okay. And I think the key here is that you need time. You need time to let that chicken simmer. And if you have lots of time, take it. If you don't have a lot of time, take the little bit of time you have to be intentional about switching brain modes because this is putting it to the taste test. This is how you calibrate your work towards the kind of things that you actually like. This is the essential piece. It's the evaluation. It, this is what it tells you whether you need to take, pull it back. You, you, you did too much. Most of the time in the play zone, you did too much and you need to pull it back to get it closer to the kind of stuff that you like the taste of. Sometimes you got to add a little salt, whatever, but here, here's what, what that looks like. Um, in order to, to shift your brain state back to a consumer of your work, someone who's tasting your work rather than a critiquer is you need to switch your modes and you need to take some amount of time, whatever amount of time you have to switch that zone. Uh, the reason I say the longest amount of time is that makes it really easy to get critical about your work in a way that's helpful because the longer you are away from the process, the less, less precious you are about the stuff that you made. Because when you are in the creative play zone, like I made this, I'm making this episode and I'm like, man, I'm having a blast. I'm feeling the flow. It's feeling great right now. Um, in a year, I'll look back and be like, dude, gotta cut the fat. There's, it's a bit fatty now that I'm tasting it. Um, now on the podcast, I try to keep this space a play zone. Um, and I think even that's another, we're not going to get into that right now, but even in your creative output, there are places where you're like, this is more play than work. And this is more work than play. And I think it's good. You can separate some of that thinking that way. So I'm going to keep it for, but, uh, but I had to own it anyway. Um, but the more time you can take, the more critical 
it, the easier it is to find that cr critical brain and be less precious about the stuff that isn't working. Um, and one of my favorite examples of this we've mentioned before on the show, but it's Taika Watiti talks about, he's a filmmaker, created Thor Ragnarok, uh, and even better than that, um, not to be a pretentious hipster, but um, Hunt for the Wilder People is just like, uh, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to hype it up, but it's phenomenal. <laughs> it's life changing. Um, I love that movie so much, but he's great creative and um, I'm a big fan. And one of the things he does is he writes a movie and then he just forgets about it for a year and then he comes back. And guess what? If he wrote that movie and the next day tried to critique it, he's going to be like, oh, but that, oh man, I don't want to lose that joke and that part and that all, you know, all of these things that he had a fun time making or have this, you know, fresh connection to. But what he'll do is he'll shelve it for a year if he can and he'll come back to it. And all of a sudden he's like, oh, this idiot, good God. Like you've grown, you, you've distanced yourself. You don't even see your past you as you, and you're able to be a lot more critical. And so if you don't have a year, which you don't, because almost nobody has the luxury that Taika is enjoying at the moment as a filmmaker um, <clears throat> that's listening to this show. So if you don't have a year, uh, what I try to do is kind of do like a heart shocker for, for the heart, but for your brain, put some of those electrical pads on your head. <laughs> this is, this is what's going to lead me to get sued. Not, not metaphorically. I mean, um, which you can do that with a walk around the block. You can do that with a nap. You can do that with a little conversation with a friend. You can, there's a bunch of different ways that you can shock the brain into switching. Um, from one to the next. And and it could even be have a conversation about a movie you just watched with a friend and start critiquing it. Get into that side of your brain. One thing that helps me is revisit the mood board and start thinking about like, why do you like what you like when it's not your work? Because that is what you're trying to get back to. And you're actually trying to push further than that. Um, and so you could even critique your favorite work of others and be like, okay, I want to get towards that zone. But any, if you got time, take it. If you got 10 minutes, take it. If you got 10 seconds, take it. Take that moment to switch your brain into a more critical place. And that might look like, there's a lot of metaphors going on. My brain is very plastic. Pla <laughs> I don't think that's right. They call about plasticity. It's non-plastic. It's very fluid right now. Um, and it's because I don't know why it is, but, uh, what you need to do is in between these two things, you've got to find a way to shock the system, cleanse the palate. You have to find what are things that for you are the ginger before the sushi. Okay. Um, how do you cleanse your, your palate and your, of your mind so that you can activate and choose a different mode as one way to do it, I love to sleep on a piece of work before I finalize it, if I have the time and come back to it. Because at the end of play, you can't even see what you've made anymore most of the time. And so overnight, that's best case scenario. If I don't have that, I'll go on a run. That that really is a piece of ginger for my brain. But whatever you do, you gotta you got to switch those gears.
All right, we're going to get to chapter three. Chapter two is too long. I apologize for it, but I got to add one more bit. You know, I noticed this in my own creative practice where if I don't give myself that time to play, if I'm trying to create an episode because I'm like, I have to create this today because it goes tomorrow, I lock up into that convergent editing part of my brain and I have a very hard time accessing the fun. It's not fun to be up against the clock when it actually matters. You know what I mean? You know, making sure that I get ahead and that I manage my time the best I can is a big part of finding those blocks of time to play and those t- those blocks of time to switch gears. And I also wanted to add that in phase three, when you're in that play zone uh, and you get cooking, t- your taste plays a role there too. But I think it has to exist in a kind of yes and way and not a con convergent critiquing way. It has to be a thing where when you notice you're tasting something that's like, oh man, this is where it's at, that you lean into those things. But when you're tasting stuff in the play and you're doing the Ouija board, writing a song like John Mayer and you say something stupid, you don't think, oh God, shut it down. This is the opposite of my taste. This is terrible. You, that is what you don't want to do. But the taste, even as you're playing, can help you kind of lean into where it's tasting great and where it's, where it's fun. But you have to keep that voice in your head that says, yeah, but it doesn't have to taste perfect. It shouldn't taste perfect. We're not even close to the end. Um, it's okay if it has messy middle and weird stuff. That's fine. We're not even worried about that. But if something tastes really good, I'm going to do a little bit more of that. I'm going to explore a little bit more of that. All right. Chapter three, your creative call to adventure. Get high on your own supply. One of my favorite um, ideas that I return to over and over and over and that we've explored a bit on this show before. So we had uh, one of my favorite creators, Radiolab uh, co-host and co-founder of the podcast Invisibilia, Lulu Miller, as a guest on this show way back in the day to episode 291. And she said something in that episode that so perfectly illustrates the idea of taste the soul tongue of uh, that that guides your creative work, um, and I'll just let her tell you about it. I think uh, all of us, like they might, yeah, it might be tasting, it might be feelings. Like we all have certain antennas, yeah, that are that point us to some kind of creative or emotional heat. And I do think some of the work is is learning to at least trust it or to like trust where it's starting to take you and then, and then really dive in and Mm -hmm. see like, even if it's hunch is wrong, maybe, maybe it's, it's led you to something you need to explore, even if you don't know why. And I do, I do think that's a huge part of it. I, I can't remember if I talked about it in that talk, but like, I think one of the most important parts in cutting tape is just to listen to your body, like an antenna when you're, when you're doing audio and like, even if the words aren't as good, you know, like that's why I think transcripts can be useless, not just not as good, but like useless. I mean, it's like, even if someone says something perfectly eloquently out of language words, there might be the most halting and eloquent thing that comes out in their voice that communicates so much more. And, and I think that that, that like, as an editor, you know, like a sound editor, producer, radio person, documentarian, you have one of the most exciting but crushing parts of it can be how many choices you have. Like someone talks about 
something, you know, falling in love in seven different ways and you really only can pick one. And, and that I do think just going back to like that first listen. And if something, if something like tickled your body and you don't even know why choose it and then use your brain to like retrofit and work out why, and then set it up to succeed. But I think there's something really powerful in that little intuitive sensor. And so this is exactly what I mean by letting your taste guide your process. And she's really talking about phase four, the taste test, where she's making a piece of work. She's making a podcast episode or a piece of a podcast. And then she's listening back through it and she's listening to it as a consumer, not as a creator, as a consumer who's being critical of the work. And she's doing it not by just referencing what, what, the objective things that the world lies about saying, this is good creative. This is bad creative. She's not doing that. She's listening to her own subjective opinion. That is not even a choice. It's not an opinion that she's formulating. It's just her listening, observing her observation of the thing, tuning into her true North of her taste and watching as the stuff plays out, when is she bored? When does she lean in? When does she tear up? Uh, my buddy, Andrew Nyer and I, he's a designer in Cincinnati, talk about all the time, Amy Poehler being asked, I think on Fresh Air, uh, do you watch the show Parks and Recreation that you're on? And the, the normal thing for creators to say is, hell no, why would I watch that? Cringe, terrible. But I think that's indicative of the idea that you you'll get stuck in your head. That's indicative of a type of artist that hasn't figured out how to separate those two pieces in a way that's really powerful in your work. And so Amy Poehler isn't like that. And she's like, of course I do. I make that show because that's what I think is funny. And that is what I think we're going for. And you do that by watching back the tapes. You don't have to do every single one. You don't have to, you know, can be a consumer of all of your work. But I think there has to be seasons in which you watch your own tapes afterwards and you observe your observation of the thing. And so here's your creative call to adventure today. It's time to get high on your own supply. You're out there dealing the, the, <laughs> the drugs of your creative work. I don't know. Sorry. You're, you're out there trying to get people hooked on your creative work in order to sell this thing, man, you got to be in touch with what's the good stuff, what's the bad stuff, because sometimes you're pushing bad stuff, you don't even know it, right? And, and so how do you do that? What you got to do is you've got to be able to um, enjoy your own work. So if you're a painter, this could look like you have a space in your house that is a, a, a wall that is for a rotating painting from you. So that you can feel like, what does this painting feel like in my house? Who does it, um, a lot of people use painting as shorthand for their identity. It says something about the type of person they are. And when you have that up on the wall, does it feel like you? Because you're really trying to make it as much of a soul mirror as possible. It's supposed to really reflect who you are as a person so that non-artists can feel non-artists that are like you can see themselves in that piece of work. And so the only way you're going to know if it's working is if you let it stay up on the wall for a couple months. So you really get a sense of it. 
you know, eventually you're going to be able to look at that painting and you're going to, it's going to get as simple as washing your hair. Shampoo is better. I go on first and clean the hair. Conditioner is better. I leave the hair silky and smooth. Oh, really, fool? Really? Why? Because it's just going to become rinse and repeat because you're going to get to this thing that's a kind of flywheel that the business world talks about where this thing leads to that thing, that leads to that thing, that leads to that thing, and it just goes in a circle. And that creative process, those phases, phase four will become phase one. And your mood boards will start to be your work. I'm not kidding when I say, when I go to make a mood board now, there's almost nothing for me to reference besides my own work. And I never, ever, ever thought I would be in that place because I'm such a fan of illustration. And I still get excited about other people's illustration. It still inspires me. I still take influence and I, I still get excited about what other people are doing. But, but I'm telling you that, that the further I go, the more, the longer the seasons are in which when I'm going out there and trying to find something to inspire my next piece, I'm going to go back to my favorite work that I've made over the past six months and try to figure out like what was good about it and what could improve about it. And when you have that painting on the wall, you're going to see like you're going to taste test it over the next couple of months. And that taste test is going to lead straight into the process of, of playing. And it's just going to, they, and what happens is you're going to have 400 episodes of a podcast because you want to outdo yourself from the previous week. And it just naturally, it just creates this momentum and it starts to snowball because every piece leads to the next. Every phase leads to the next and it's all full circle. And so here's your conclusion. You've got to figure out what is a way that you can build that taste testing that getting high on your own supply into your own creative process. For me as an illustrator, it has looked like um, making t-shirts. I'll just make t-shirts on demand, like one t-shirt, one copy of that design in the style that I'm currently working in. And then I will force myself to wear that shirt as embarrassing as it is. And then I will just notice like, do I like wearing it? Do I pick it up straight out the wash? It's the first thing I want to wear. Or is it the thing where I'm like, really don't want to put that shirt on? Like I don't, it's not, I, there's just so many other things. The goal is as an illustrator um, in that way or a t-shirt designer is to be like, there is no other t-shirt that I would rather wear. Like that's where your taste and your work, the gap is completely closed and it's so your taste, there's nothing else that even comes close. And I think that only happens from getting high on your own supply, making yourself cry with your own podcast, making yourself laugh with your own jokes. That's the only thing that you have because the only true north, the only compass you have is your subjective opinion because that's what creativity is. So my challenge to you is to figure out how do you become a consumer of your own work in a way that goes beyond just taking a look at it. Well, Would you look at that? That goes beyond just like a, a quick glance. How do you expand phase four into a place where you are genuinely consuming stuff that you make long enough to be honest with yourself, 
to get a real sense of what's good about it, what's bad about it, to get to a place where it automatically is a springboard to your next creative work. Quick recap on this episode. The first thing we talked about is not if you should be critical of your work, but when you should. The second thing we talked about was knowing the difference between the the lanes of the highway in your brain, knowing the difference between your critical brain and your creative brain, your your convergent brain and your divergent brain, and and know. And number three, the third thing we talked about is knowing when to activate those energies throughout your creative practice and making space for those different modes of thinking. And we ended with the call to action of getting high on your own supply. And this last bit, this is just for myself, okay? Um, You know, so I get real pumped up on this show and sometimes it just gets so intense that I'm like embarrassed because I'm like, dude, just chill out, man. What the heck? But I can't chill out because these pep talks are, are really me getting high on my own supply if I'm completely honest. And so I get like that because I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to me and I'm looking in the mirror. I'm looking in the video, looking in the camera, recording this right now. And I'm like, Andy, dude, you know, you're recording this episode this week. You have lots of space before this comes out because you've, you've worked really hard at creating that space. And it meant that this, the, the process, the cooking of this episode was so much more fun because you created the space and you don't know for sure, but I have a deep suspicion, buddy, that because you created the space to have fun in the process, the consumption of this episode will be that much more enjoyable and it'll be much more fun to tuck into for whoever's listening to this. And, uh, and I hope that that is the encouragement that you need to continue to prioritize making the space by, by managing your time because it's not about if you're critical or creative it's about when you're doing that and um, that just takes a little bit of intention and it takes something you're not good at which is time management you're, you're ADHD, you're time blind and, and maybe I'll just say one more thing next time you get in a spot where you didn't manage your time well instead of being in that convergent part of your head that wants to be critical you tell them it's not time for that, okay? There's no time for that. We don't have time at all. I've got to shut you out and just get playing um, and have, have grace because it's going to happen again. Hey, massive shout out to Lulu Miller, uh, such an inspiring creator to me. Um, been a big fan for a long time. She has a new show out. Um, it's produced by the Radio Lab people. It's called Terrestrials. And I think um, it's been dubbed a little bit like Radio Lab for Kids, but I don't think it's really like that. I think it's 
more like a Pixar movie. And, you know, they say they don't make kids movies. They make movies for people of all ages. And that show is, if you like this show, I think you'll like that. Um, if you want to turn off your convergent thinking, you know, we get pretty critical and analytical and logical in this show. If you want to turn that brain off for a minute and try to, maybe you need a palate cleanser before you go get into the creative play. This is a great show for that because it is so much fun. There's silly music on it um, that I think is as funny and enjoyable for adults as it is for kids. Um, that that music and then it's poignant. Like there, I've teared up to them talking about how we have been we stereotyped um, octopuses for being invertebrates because we believe they're not. We believed they weren't intelligent. And it just ends up being this metaphor for the way that we stereotype things. And um, there's a, it's just so good. Go go check it out. Terrestrials, wherever you listen to shows with Lulu Miller. Um, just a huge, huge fan of her work. And uh, she's just been so encouraging to me over the years. Um, and uh, I just really appreciate what she does. So go check it out. If you loved this episode and um, you want to help us, uh, if you want to support the show, nothing is more helpful than you just sharing it. And we we love seeing people share it on social media. If you want to do that, more power to you. We really, really appreciate that. And we've built this show on people like you doing that. But just as important, maybe even more important, is just send it to five people. Text five people that you think are maybe stuck in the convergent thinking, stuck in their head, and they, they're tasting the dish at the wrong time, and it's about to be the last dish they ever make because they're just they're just risking it every time. Um, whoever that is, if, if you think they could use a little, little dose of this, we would appreciate it if you would share it with those people, text it to your, to your friends and whatnot to uh, get the word out because... If I'm completely honest, yeah, this show, it brought a lot of good to me. It continues to do so. Um, but the catalyst behind this show was, I just love creative people. You know, even if I, I think if I go on to win who wants to be a billionaire, I think I'll still make this show because I, I just care about creative people. I love the creative process. I love, um, I love seeing creators win like and I mean creatively I love when their best works ahead of them I love when someone um, who who is discounted and, and people think is way past their prime does their best work and um, and so if, if this helps you uh, maybe it'll help someone else unlock that too um, thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music and soundtrack Huge thanks to Connor Jones of Pending Beautiful for sound design and editing. Thanks to Ryan Appleton, Katie Chandler, Sophie Miller for podcast assistance of all kinds. And thanks to you for listening. And until we speak again, stay pepped up, man. And people of all persuasions. Still trying to work out that um, hippie man thing that my my uh, mother instilled in me. Um, <laughs> uh Stay pepped up, people.